Good morning. We are uh, going to mix things up a little bit this morning and, and do something we haven't done probably in a very long time. Um, this is a great opportunity for us to demonstrate what we believe about the priesthood of all believers. Um, this morning as we wrap up our 47 message study of the, of the epistle to the Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans, uh, we're going to have a few other guys get up here before I have anything to say uh, and and share some things that God has put on their hearts during the time that, that we've been studying this great epistle. Now, it's completely impossible for us to do a thematic review of the epistle to the Romans in one message. I sent out, uh, most of you should, who have emails should have gotten what I call, what I consider to be a thematic outline of the of the, the epistle. If you didn't get that, let the church office know, and we'll get you a copy. It's three you know three full pages of content. Um, we can't go through all those themes, but what we're going to do this morning is each of the four of us are going uh, is going to present something that really registered in our hearts as as a, a kind of a special a lesson uh, in the midst of the time that we've been studying this great epistle. Uh, the, th- the three men who will go before me are Jeff Goins, Leonard Edgar, and Steve Eichenbaum. I invited the men to submit uh, suggestions. We got four of them. One of those guys ended up having to be out of town this weekend, so the other three will be presenting. And I'm going to uh, just sit down and let them come up one at a time and share what God has put on their hearts and I would ask you to to kind of lift them up as as they're up here sharing with you and pay pay good attention. They have some great things to share. Tom's right. Um, before we prayed, before uh, we got up and speak, it's our tradition to get together and pray. And of course, he kind of encouraged us that sometimes uh, you know anxiety kind of gets in the way of public speakers. And uh, I want to caution you that that's really not. Something that bothers me, um, but what I would like to tell you is this is a very dangerous place to be because you do speak for God and you shouldn't take it lightly. And I don't. And um, I ask if I say anything that's offensive or uh, not scripturally based, please correct me, um, you know, gently and uh, individually. <laughs> um, God has used Romans, uh, in particular 118 and the subsequent passages, to bring me to faith in Christ Jesus. At that time, many years ago, it explained to me much of what was wrong in the world. Uh, the difficult and troubling circumstances I saw in the world weren't the actions of a harsh and distant God, or no God at all. Then I didn't even want to admit that God did exist. But instead I discovered a loving, just, and righteous God who allows mankind, including me, to deny his existence, his goodness, his love, and consequently suffer for it, or said another way, to suffer from the lack of it. In particular, uh, Tom's use, um, when we went through this section, of man's truth suppression. If if we can read uh, the passages from... uh, Romans chapter 1, 18 and on, I'll kind of jump uh, sequentially through some verses, but uh, and I'll name them out so that you know. Um, 
I'll start in uh, Romans 1.19. Since what may be known, let me repeat that, since what may be known about God is plain to them, even me, and all mankind, really, because God has made it plain to them. In Romans 20, 1.20, his attributes have been clearly seen, being understood. For and Now dropping down one verse to 121. For although they and I knew God, they and I neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their and my thinking became futile. They and I exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's dropping down to Romans 125. A few verses down, 128. Furthermore, since they and I did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them and me over to a depraved mind. That's in 128. That leads them, and again, me, to every kind of sin and to even invent ways of doing evil. Verse 30. Notice my emphasis on the words known, new, knowledge, understood, clearly seen, thinking, think, and the mind. The text is clear that God has not made knowing him or his attributes difficult. In fact, it is plain. But conversely, not knowing him or denying knowing him or his attributes leads to futile thinking, a depraved mind, and all kinds of evil. Despite the claims of all my unbelieving non-Christian friends, I find this to be a very true and compelling argument for God and his existence, and even more so for his son Jesus. So what happens to me if I no longer deny God's existence, his character, attributes, etc., and acknowledge him? Well, your experience should be mine, I obviously should begin glorifying him, giving him thanks, not suppressing his truth, but extolling it. My thinking should not be futile. My mind should not be depraved. And more practically, I should not be practicing, encouraging, or inventing sins. If you're like me, that sounds easier than it actually is. Later, Paul himself confesses in in chapter 7, and I think one of my brothers is going to speak to that, the difficulty of doing all this. So how do we do that? When Tom put out the the invitation to pick passages, I picked this passage, Romans 1, 18 and on. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and da-da-da-da. And then the second passage was Romans 12. So if you'll turn to me, I think Romans 12 can sandwich the concept that I'm trying to talk about. In Romans 12, it starts... I, by the way, I'm reading from the NIV version, if you hadn't figured that out yet. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I have some comments about this. Offering your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, not only as a spiritual worship, but as another way of saying glorifying him. And if, in fact, in Romans 2 it says we fail to glorify him, when we come to faith, what we should be doing is glorifying him. And there's no better way than sacrificing your living bodies, your whole totality, to him. Your mind, your body, your actions, your words, your thoughts, everything, you should be a living sacrifice to him. This is something we should have been doing all along from the very beginning and something for which he is totally worthy. Secondly, second phrase in this passage is, not conforming to the pattern of this world seems easy enough. I mean, you look around, you go, I don't need to conform to that. But really, there is more significance to it. If I read the notes of my net Bible correctly, and I have never studied Greek, so forgive me if I'm incorrect, but it has to do with the word conform. And let me quote from the notes in the net Bible. Quote, it is very telling that being conformed, quote, conformed, to the present world is viewed as a passive notion. For it may suggest that it happens in part subconsciously. At the same time, the passive could well be a permissive passive, suggesting that there may be some consciousness of the conformity taking place. Most likely, it is a combination of both, unquote. Or to put it in my words, not conforming takes our intentional action. We cannot be passive about not conforming or we will conform. And I think if you look around at your life, the church, Christendom in general, we have conformed greatly because we have not been active enough, intentional enough in our not conforming. Finally, or thirdly, not finally, but thirdly, this is the point I want to camp out on a little bit. Being transformed in that passage, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, comes by way of renewing our mind. And this is where I want to sandwich Romans 2 and Romans 12, because in 2 we talked about the mind and our knowing and thinking and our depraved mind. If we don't want a depraved mind, we need to renew our mind. So being transformed comes by way of renewing our mind or to make our minds new again, like before when we didn't acknowledge and honor God. I'm, I'm sorry, before we didn't acknowledge them, make them new, before we were fallen or, or actively sinned. In other parts of Scripture, we are commanded to take every thought captive. I love that verse. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time being still in my mind. Thoughts just race through them. You know, I'm not really in control of all my thoughts. I mean, advertisers know that, otherwise they wouldn't be advertising. They know they can stimulate my thinking. And I have to capture those thoughts and submit them, just like you do. I used to disciple 10th grade boys, and I would say, guys, you need a filter, just like on your computer, because what's coming in can be garbage, and it's going to lock you down. And you need to know that now and filter those thoughts. You need to be renewing your mind. So take every thought captive, 
Elsewhere in Scripture, we are commanded to think about specific and noble things or not to think about other things, things that reflect God and his attributes. We have to return our minds to a condition when we didn't think wrongly about God and Jesus, and that's when we can begin to be transformed. Finally, final point, when we get our minds right about God and we are thanking, honoring, glorifying him with our bodies, then we'll be transformed. But the test of that, the proof of that, and being transformed, we can test and approve what the will of God is, the good and well-pleasing and perfect will of God. And one of the things I get to deal with young people and even myself in, in later life, what's the will of God in your life? What's the will of God? Like God's going to tell you in advance, this is what his will is in your life. It says he has prepared, you're his workmanship, and he has prepared good works for you to walk in in advance. He already knows, you know, but he's not going to tell you that. He's not going to mail you a letter, you know. You get to discover that, and that's a great adventure. And the only way you do that is if you submit your bodies as living sacrifices, you constantly renew your mind, and you're glorifying him, and then you get to prove it as it works out. In your daily walks in life, you ever go, oh, man, screwed that one up. That must not been the will of God or his perfect will. You know, you, you messed it up. But there are times when you do get to prove it and you go, Man, that was all God, and I got to participate in that. There is no better joy than being there and going, wow, God. So those are my contributions. Thank you. Greetings. It's good to see each of you here, and I hope each of you are doing well. Uh, This section of review comes from Romans uh, chapter 15, verses 14 through 33. And in Tom's... um, outline that he sent for the teaching hour to prepare, uh, there are two themes that are presented, and those are the themes that we'll be covering today. So during this review, some questions will be asked, and after each question, uh, think about how you would answer that question. And after each question, there will be about 10 seconds for each of us to think about that question and how we would answer it. So Romans, uh, the first theme is Romans 15 verses 14 through 19, so let me read that. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way Around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So the theme that uh, Tom identified in uh, his handout was, we serve in God's power, not ours. Paul's confidence regarding the effectiveness and outcome of his ministry to the Gentiles was founded only in Christ working through him. So each of us has a ministry, and we should ask ourselves, 
what does our ministry look like to God, to believers, and to unbelievers? Does our ministry exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, or do we exhibit an unloving character? God is love, and as we show and express love, we are demonstrating God's loving character. Like Paul, the effectiveness and outcome of each of our ministries is founded only in Christ working through each of us. Going on to the second theme, which is in Romans 15, verses 20 through 33. I'll be reading those scriptures. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God and on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with, be with you all. Amen. So the theme of this section is we serve on God's terms, not ours. Paul fully yielded to God's agenda even when things didn't happen as Paul expected. God has a plan for each of us, and we should ask ourselves, Do we fully yield to God's agenda for our life? If not, what spiritual blessings are we not aware of by obeying God's agenda for our life? Scripture gives us insight into God's blessing, us in Christ with spiritual blessings, and the plan God set forth in Christ. Um, I'll be reading now from Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 3. And this scripture discusses the spiritual blessings in Christ and also uh, the plan God set forth in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, 
according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance and to we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Thanks be to God for all of his spiritual blessings. So then, do our lives communicate to God that we are a genuine or a fake follower of Christ? So then, brothers and sisters, as we go out into the world, let's remember that our life is a gift from God, and what we do with our life is a gift to God. God bless you. Good morning. I confess to you, I had I had no um, no idea I was going to stand here before you today. This is uh, comes from the Lord completely, not of my own, and I I beg your your patience with me as I try to walk you through that what turned out to be one of the most important scriptures verses for me in the Book of Romans that Paul taught. I I fully expected it to be Romans nine, ten, and eleven, as Tom would talk about. Jews and Gentiles and the reconciliation of Israel to Jesus at that appointed time. However, when, when Tom got to Romans 7 and talked about sin, that, um, that hit my soul. So what I'd like to try and do to you to, for you today is to walk you through Romans 7, verse 7 through 25, and speak about that a little bit. But um, to give you a little background, I'm going to start <clears throat> and share with you from Romans 3, and you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but in um, Romans 3, starting verse 19, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I think back to 2004, before I knew the Lord, or 2000, and started coming to CBC, and when uh, Bob Deffenbaugh started the book of Matthew, and walked us through Matthew at that time, I did believe. However, I didn't understand how deep sin could be. <clears throat> so from time to time, I have felt like, and even up to today, and very much today, I have felt like there's an anvil around my neck, pointing me into the sins that I have committed and and in the judgmental way that I have acted towards other brothers and sisters in Christ and not in Christ, not knowing and not looking deep enough into myself to acknowledge that. So with that being said, I just want to share with you now, if I may, um, Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 7, just a little prelude where Paul is talking about, uh, in essence, coveting, where a woman um, who whose husband may have, who's with a husband is not able to course go with anybody else but then when he passes she is able to then at that point marry another um so chapter 7 verse 7 paul says what shall we say then is the lost sin may it never be on the contrary i would not have known to come 
sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking every opportunity through the commandments, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became sin alive, and I died. I'm going to skip down to verse number 14. And then, and, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I am not practicing, what I would like to do, but I do the very thing I hate. And I started thinking, how much, how much in our lives are we, are we doing those things over and over and over again? And we don't know why, and we don't understand why. And I think the reason we're doing those things is because of the bondage of sin that, that is within us, in us. And that we go on and on. And I, I fully believe that um, we should be thankful for the body of Christ and Christ himself who covers us for those sins. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, and this is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good I want to do, not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the only the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And, and there I believe Paul is speaking about the freedom of Christ. Being dead to our sin and being alive in him covers our, our sins with his blood. And I, and I believe that it's this verse that, that releases the anvil from around our necks, knowing. But I think it also gives us, bears us more responsibility to, to, as Christ has said before, love our brothers. And like our motto says in our church, love our brothers as we would love ourselves and love thy neighbor. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. On the other, with my flesh of sin. So, in order to respond to that, I think we should treat others with grace and mercy all the days of our lives. And know that, yes, we may be sinners, and we are, is to acknowledge that. And take that and turn that into grace for others, as Jesus has told us. How can we be forgiven of our sins if we can't forgive others? Thank you. Thank you, all three of you guys, uh, for for taking the time to to prepare your thoughts and to share them with us as as a body. Uh, there are so many marvelous things in this epistle. Uh, my prayer is that each of us has been impacted by them. You did great, Steve. <laughs> that each of us has been impacted by them, and that we will be doers of that which we have have heard. Um, to wrap up my part of, of this series, and it's hard to even think of wrapping up in Romans, uh, I'm going to focus on one particular thread that has kind of jumped out at me as I've been going through the, this round of study of this great epistle. And that's, that's the theme of humility. Everywhere I look in this letter, I find God's call to us who are his elect, to be humble, to humble ourselves before our glorious God. Uh, and this call to humbly submit to him extends to every aspect of our dealings with God. It defines for us who we are, why we're here, and what we are to be thinking and saying and doing every single day of our lives.
And as this, this matter of humility goes to the very heart of what messed things up in the first place, right? If you go back to the fall, according to, to Romans chapter 1 and the passage that Jeff uh, kind of looked at this morning for us, everything started when man had the knowledge of God clearly revealed through that which had been made and revealed within man according to God's own declaration, clearly revealed, and man suppressed that truth and unrighteousness, shoved it under the rug and then replaced it with a truth of his own making. And professing to be wise, men became fools and exchanged the glory of of the only true God for images in the form of things that God had made, starting with an image in the form of man himself. That's a failure at the highest level, a failure of humility before our glorious God. God made himself known, and we decided we had something better. The heart of man's downfall is a failure of humility, and the heart, the very essence of God's solution to man's downfall is that God works into the hearts of his elect godly humility. And that's what has really impressed me. One of the things that's really impressed me as we've gone through this time around Think about it this way. If it's true that man's spiritual demise proceeded from our failure to humble ourselves before our glorious God, it is equally true that the way God has resolved that failing is that he has done in us what we would never have done in ourselves and could never have done in ourselves. He has made us humble before him. That humility first applies to the gospel message. I see two aspects to the humility that God works in us. First is he he makes us to humble ourselves to embrace his assessment. And secondly, he makes us to humble ourselves to embrace his assignment. First, his assessment. That assessment, the first step of that humility with regard to God's assessment is that we come to acknowledge his assessment about himself. And that is that He's glorious, he's holy, and we are not. As we examine what he's revealed, not just in nature, but in his specific revelation that he's given us in his word, we find that the only reference point for an accurate understanding of things like holiness and righteousness and compassion and grace and mercy and justice that we will ever have is by looking at God. We find that that the God who calls us to fall down and worship Him is the only one who's worthy of worship in the first place. He's the only one worthy of honor. And so we first agree with God's assessment about Himself. And this isn't a formula. This isn't even a chronological order. This is just a process that I believe God brings us through to draw us to Himself. So we agree with His assessment about Himself. And secondly, we agree with His assessment about us. In chapter 118 through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul lays out God's assessment of us. And what is that assessment? It's, it's that we are miserable and wretched and lost. I've known a number of people who say that they believe the gospel, but as soon as you ask them what they deserve, they start talking about themselves. 
And that's what I call a dead giveaway, and the pun is intended. Because it reveals that they have not embraced God's assessment of who they are and what's true of them. Here's God's assessment, as Paul presented it in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and following. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. If God has worked into your heart the humility that is necessary to bring you to salvation, that means you have come to entirely agree with God when he declares that all men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and that what you have earned by your sin, the wages of your sin, is death. And that death is not merely the death of the physical body. It is eternal separation from the presence of God and from the glory of His power, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It is a death that applies to us because we are unworthy to be in the presence of a holy God. So we accept God's assessment of Himself, and then we accept God's assessment of us, and finally we accept God's assessment of His Son. Jesus Christ. And God says that His Son is perfect God and perfect man. He is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And when He went to the cross, He bore upon Himself the eternal penalty that applied to us. He paid a debt we could not pay. And it was a debt that He did not owe. When we come to embrace God's assessment, concerning himself, concerning us, and concerning his son, we come to a very simple conclusion, and that is that God did it all, and we did nothing. And brothers, that is a glorious humility that God works into our hearts because that doesn't come from us. It comes only from the work of his spirit in our hearts to convict us concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When we simply put our trust in that which Christ has accomplished in our place, God gives us life. And you can discuss which comes first. That's fine. It's all God's package. It is salvation by grace through faith. And God brings it about. Having submitted by His doing to His assessment, God now brings us to submit to His assignment. He calls us to a humility to recognize, to embrace that life itself is defined by him and not by us. Everything that has to do with the life that he has given us in Christ, we come to understand because he's told us what it consists of. He humbles us to accept his absolute claim over that life that he has given to us. And that's a step of humility that has to be renewed every day and every moment of every day. It's not one that's done once we've done it, right? This is the humility that God continues to work in our hearts, and it's the humility from which His work of sanctification proceeds in our lives. We see and embrace God's calling, and that calling is 
as my brothers have set before us already this morning, to be slaves. That calling is, if you want to put it in one verse from this great epistle, it's laid out for us in Romans 12.1. Now I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. It's your only reasonable service of worship. We are called to be living sacrifices to the Most High God. In chapter 6 through 8, Paul kind of fleshes out some more of the nature of that calling, of that assignment that we have from God. He tells us that we are called to present the very members, the physical parts of our bodies, to God as slaves of righteousness and slaves of God. And he tells us as he moves through to chapter 8 that our assignment is to set our minds on the Spirit, not on the flesh. We have to live by the Spirit in order to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And this life of submission to God in all things, the life to which every believer is called, demands humility. A humility that only God can bring about. As we've seen in the last couple of times together, he brings about that humble obedience by the ongoing work of his Holy Spirit through his word. And so the knowledge of his word is indispensable. If we want want to be humbled before our God as he is at work to make us, then we have to be humble before his word. And that humility means that We embrace a discipline of life that means we go before God, we behold Him in His Word daily, constantly. We saturate our minds with the knowledge of God, lest, as Jeff pointed out, we be conformed to the world passively. If we're not active about the pursuit of the knowledge of God, then we will not be humbled before Him. For us who are the redeemed of God, the most threatening failure of humility is not that which we behold in the world around us. That's what we get all torqued about, right? We see the way the world thinks and the way the world acts and we get all upset about that. Beloved, that's not the threat. The threat to us as the children of God is the failure of humility that exists in the church of Jesus Christ. We want to pick and choose which parts of God's Word to take seriously while we push others aside as too inconvenient. We want to cling to our own control over material wealth and security and comfort. We want the freedom to indulge in some of the things that the world holds dear. And we want to do all that with the delusion that God thinks it's okay. It's not okay. This great epistle makes no allowances at all for that kind of compromised approach to the sanctified life. You won't find anything like that anywhere in here or in any other book or passage of Scripture. The Bible presents the sanctified life as slavery (laughs) to God and to righteousness. The only comforts that slaves have are those that their master determines to give to them. The only agenda that slaves have 
is their master's agenda. And for us who are both slaves and sons of the Most High God, that's exactly where we want to be. (laughs) Because when we humble ourselves to be servants of God, God is glorified, and what glorifies Him turns out to be for our greatest good. That's how He set things up. When it comes to the failure of humility that persists at various levels in the church, some of us, I think, take an easy out when we simply declare that those who do not fully humble themselves before God and do things His way aren't really His redeemed. We're all prone to come to that conclusion. And it's a pretty popular way to deal with wayward and distracted Christians. We simply decide that they're not Christians, and so we then can get on with paying attention to those who seem to be with God's agenda. But guys, I think there's an underlying failure of humility even in that way of dealing with things. And please don't get me wrong. Calling yourself a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. There are certainly those who name the name of Christ who have never reckoned with their desperate need, who would not tell you that what they deserve is eternal condemnation, and they have not truly trusted in Jesus Christ as the one and only provision for their sin. But I know whom I have believed. And yet if I'm honest with God and I'm honest with you about my own struggles... The fact is that I struggle daily to fully deny myself, to fully deny the enticements of this wretched world and to take up my cross and to cling only to Christ. I struggle with that daily. And I'd hazard to guess that you guys have the same struggle. There's a great quantity of Scripture that claims to be directed to the redeemed of God that calls us to act like the redeemed of God, to act in keeping with our identity as those who have been brought to faith in Christ and given real life and justified in the eyes of God. That's what Romans 6 is all about, right? Paul says, what shall we say? Shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? He doesn't say... If you you could ask that question, you prove yourself not to be a child of God. No, he says... You have been buried with Christ in the likeness of His death and you have been raised with Him in the likeness of His resurrection to newness of life. Therefore, reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God and get with God's agenda. Submit the members of your body as slaves of righteousness and of God. The Bible's solution to a lukewarm church is for the church to repent of its world-infested mindset and behavior and to cling to Christ. In the letter of Jesus Christ to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, Jesus indicts that church without mincing words. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see the failure of humility there? I advise you to buy gold from me, gold refined by fire that you may become rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and I sad to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And our first inclination when we read that is to say, wow, he must be talking to the unbelievers who are mixed in with the believers. And yet the very next words that the Lord says to that same church is those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, be zealous therefore and repent. He doesn't tell them that their actions have proven them not to be his. He tells them that because their deeds are neither hot nor cold, they're about to experience painful Discipline from the hand of God. The writer of Hebrews says, All discipline is sorrowful for the moment, but in the end it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And he says the purpose of that discipline is that we may share God's holiness. And that's a good thing. That's not a threat. That's a promise from God that He is at work to humble us. Because it is in humility that we discover what it means to be joyful and peaceful and purposeful and powerful for God. And there's no other way. He has to strip away the pride. He has to destroy the pride in order to bring us to a point of humility so that He's the one who lives through us. Jesus follows that rebuke with a wonderful invitation. That rebuke and that call to repentance. And it's an invitation that's often pulled out of context and used directed toward unbelievers, but it's an invitation to the redeemed of God. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. James says that God jealously desires the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. And it is precisely because his spirit resides in us who have believed in Jesus Christ that it is spiritual adultery for us to seek to be friends with this world. It is because we are his children that he will never, never turn a blind eye to our flirtations with this depraved world. The solution for compromised hearts is the same solution that brought us to Christ in the first place. It is for God to humble us so that we come to recognize what real life is. The solution is for us who have been buried with Christ in the likeness of His death and raised with Him in the likeness of His resurrection to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God and to live accordingly. Not in some half-hearted or compromised way, but in a manner, in a manner that manifests both to men and to angels the miraculous power of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The solution is for us to humbly present our bodies as sacrifices, whole, entire sacrifices to God. For us to reject all conformity with this world and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 
proving out in our thoughts and our words and our actions that which is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The solution is for us who are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ to set our minds only on the things that are above, never on the things that are on the earth. We do not hope in that which we see. Hope that is seen is not hope. If we hope for that which we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. That's the hope that matters. We look forward and we look upward. We don't look around. (laughs) Because God humbles us to recognize that the things that we can handle on this earth and get our hands on will never satisfy. He will not allow them to satisfy because they are not life. The solution is humility. Philippians 2, many of you know this passage. We apply this very often to our interactions with other people. But at the very heart of it is our interaction with God, our relationship with God. Just as as it is a picture of the relationship between the Son and the Father. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. (laughs) And then he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what it's about. It's about God stripping away the pride and putting us on that path of life and keeping us there. He's the one who makes us to stand. And you can count on the fact that as He works in you and makes you to stand, He's going to humble you. And He's going to spend the rest of your days on this earth chipping away at any remnant of pride that you might be humble before Him. A slave is not greater than his master, and our master humbled himself to serve only the purposes and the will of his Father. I pray with all my heart that the study of this great epistle will move us to do the same. Loving Father, we thank you for the power of this letter. Ah, there's so much in it. Father, there have been so many times in the process of studying these 16 chapters that you've brought us to tears that you have humbled us that you have that you have convicted us that you've taught us things that we need that we need to know we ask lord that that your spirit would be at work in us to burn these things into our hearts that we could never set them aside that that our understanding of that which is true and of that which is life indeed would come only, Lord, only from what you have told us. And that you would grant us the humility always
to find truth and life in your revelation of yourself to us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name as we pray, Lord, that you would make us doers of your word. Amen.